Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is International Horizons, a podcast that addresses uh, international issues of many kinds uh, from a scholarly and uh, professional perspective. Today, we're fortunate to have with us uh, Balint Magyar from Hungary, who is going to address uh, the recent uh, Polish and Hungarian opposition to the European Recovery Fund and more broadly, the emergence of what he calls mafia states in post-communist Eastern Europe, about which he has written extensively. Um, he's a research fellow at the Financial Research Institute uh, and has been since 2010. He holds a doctoral degree in political economy from Eötvös Loránd University in Budapest, since 2013, he's published and edited many books on post-communist mafia states. As I mentioned, he was an Open Society Fellow uh, to conduct comparative studies in this area in 2015-16. He's been Hans Speyer, uh, visiting professor at the New School, uh, formerly the New School for Social Research in 2017, and a Senior Fellow at the Central European University uh, Institute for Advanced Study in 2018-2019. He was formerly, formerly an activist of the Hungarian anti-communist dissident movement, uh, a founder of the Liberal Party of Hungary, a member, of, excuse me, a member of the Hungarian Parliament from 1990 to 2010, and Minister of Education twice from 1996 to 1998 to 2000 and 2002 to 2006. Thank you so much for joining us, Malint Magyar. Not at all. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you with us. So, uh, as I say, we wanted to address, uh, you know, your broader uh, writings about uh, post-communist Eastern Europe, but I wanted to start uh, by asking you about one of the most important recent developments in the European Union, which is to say Poland's and Hungary's joint re rejection of the terms of the European Recovery Fund, upon which so much of the economic recovery of the European Union from the pandemic would seem to depend. Uh, and I wonder if you could explain, you know, what's going on there? Why did these two countries suddenly decide to oppose uh, what had been regarded as a major breakthrough, really, for the European Union as a as a kind of cooperative entity, a kind of major step forward in terms of the extent to which uh, European countries in the European Union regard themselves as uh, in a shared enterprise, uh, namely the European Union. Yes, now there is a kind of stalemate situation in the European Union uh, because. Uh, the acceptance of the uh, next seven years budget needs a kind of unanimous votes uh, uh, from the uh, members of the 
uh, European Union and Poland and Hungary uh, already declared that they would veto this uh, and the acceptance of the recovery fund as well. Uh, if, uh, uh, among the conditions uh, that will be incorporated, uh, the need to take into consideration uh, the norms of the rule of law. Uh, of course, uh, on one side, it's a, it's a technical stalemate situation, but I think it can be solved in that sense that uh, already uh, uh, the regulation about uh, taking into consideration the uh, principles of rule of law, uh, it was already accepted, so it's not necessary to combine now with the question of budget and the recovery fund, but uh, uh, the two countries uh, insist to it that it would be declared that they won't take any measures if they heard the rules of uh, heard the rule of law. Uh, such a way, uh, the European countries are a kind of hostages of the of the uh, two countries, Hungary and uh, and uh, Poland, uh, and uh, they are blackmailing uh, the EU. Uh, the situation uh, resembles for the uh, uh, Republic of Mobility uh, of Poland from the 17th, uh, 18th century, where uh, for all decisions in the same, uh, needed a unanimous vote for, from the uh, member, noblemen, and uh, it resulted uh, the dissolve of the whole Polish empire within one and a half uh, century. Uh, uh, the Polish uh, Empire uh, state just disappeared for a long uh, for a long time, and uh, of course, uh, such a behavior, which not uh, looking for consensus, uh, uh, can undermine the cooperation among the uh, among the uh, European states. Uh, but of course, this uh, uh, technical uh, stalemate situation uh, could be solved even in that way, as Giver uh, Verbostadt already proposed that uh, uh, the European law already foresees the possibility for nine or more countries to go ahead uh, by an enhanced uh, cooperation uh, within the framework and the spirit of the EU uh, as a whole, if they wish. And, and uh, uh, for example, the <coughs> Eurozone is also such an experience within the EU, where not all members are the members at the same time of the Eurozone, and the recovery fund, at least, could be accepted by these countries as well. Uh, the situation is different with the budget, which needs a unanimous vote and, uh, from the member states. And uh, if it does not happen, then the, uh, uh, then the previous budget uh, will be valid for the next years as well. But uh, the main question is not simply a technical one. Uh, about uh, seven years ago, with a friend of mine, we wrote an article in which we argued that the emergence of a multi-speed or two-speed European Union is unavoidable because there are conflicts of different interests within the EU. On one hand, uh, the European Union is, uh, would be a kind of uh, uh, association of countries uh, which share same values of democracy, of liberal democracy. And on the other hand, of course, the European Union has a, a regional uh, interest as well. And these uh, two principles uh, can, can be in contradiction with each, uh, with each other, uh, uh, not only 
because of that they did not uh, manage to, uh, how to regulate if they would like to exclude anybody from the EU if they do not accept or uh, do not realize uh, or act along the side of the along the lines of the uh, uh, norms of liberal democracy. But of course, they would not do such things because of the. Uh, uh, in this case, there would be a regional power vacuum in Eastern Europe, and, and the Russian interference and influence uh, would be even more strong. And at that time, uh, <coughs> we forecasted such a situation where within the EU there will be a kind of buffer zone of half autocratic regimes, uh, uh, where and there will be a uh, other circle of European Union countries uh, uh, based mainly on the Eurozone uh, members uh, who would create a more uh, close cooperation uh, and more developed cooperation with each other. And now we are somewhere, uh, somewhere here at this point when this conflict will be, can become very clear and uh, the EU has to decide that if they do not want to be permanently the hostages of a few autocratic or half-autocratic countries like uh, Hungary or Poland, then uh, they have to solve and not only give concessions uh, uh, and uh, just uh, <clears throat> not taking seriously that transformation uh, which happens in some Eastern European countries, uh, uh, namely deteriorating the democratic rules. So do you see this getting worked out? I mean, a lot of people, people point particularly perhaps to Italy uh, uh, as countries that are really dependent on this money coming through. Um, do you think this is going to get resolved? Well, uh, uh, <clears throat> Hungary and Poland, at the same time, uh, uh, while both are uh, uh, in an autocratic transformation, they are different phases. Uh, they represent different phases of this process. Uh, in the case of Poland, uh, uh, there is still an autocratic attempt, but did not happen yet an autocratic breakthrough. Uh, uh, and of course, not the third phase, the so-called autocratic consolidation. Uh, autocratic breakthrough would mean when one single political actor uh, uh, became the monopolist of the political power. It did not happen in Poland. So they do not have, the Peace and Kaczynski uh, uh, do not have a, a super majority in the parliament, which would mean that they cannot change the constitution alone and they cannot appoint uh, uh, to the top of the institutions which should serve as the institutions of checks and balances their party cadres or their followers. In Hungary, the situation is different. In 2010, the Fidesz, uh, the party of Viktor Orban, uh, just with 53% of the votes, they gained 67% of the seats in the parliament. In such a way, the autocratic breakthrough happened. A single political force after it in 2011 uh, rewrote the whole constitution and <clears throat> changed uh, the, the leaders of uh, different institutions uh, of checks and balances uh, to their own, own cadres. Since that time, uh, since 2011, after the autocratic breakthrough, 
they are already in the phase of autocratic consolidation, which means that they uh, try to invade uh, the different spheres of social actions, economy, uh, media, uh, civil society, and so on. So, therefore, there are uh, in the in the phases uh, already differences between the two autocratic attempts uh, between Poland and Hungary, but not. Only this is the question that uh, uh, that uh, what is the space of this autocratic transformation. But uh, in spite of the fact that <clears throat> both countries are using very similar ideological panels uh, uh, for legitimating their power, uh, but uh, in spite of this, that they are using similar panels, uh, they represent very different types of autocracies uh, in Eastern Europe. The similarity of these ideological panels, uh, uh, on one hand, was that uh, uh, both denied uh, 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 the legitimacy of the regime changes uh, of uh, 1890-1990, uh, and uh, they think that it was just a, a dirty bargain above the, of elites above the head of the people, and therefore they declared that uh, their simple uh, winning of the, of the elections represent a new regime change, and uh, uh, they practically uh, exclude, do, exclude uh, their uh, opponents from the notion of the nation, and they say that uh, only those people belong to the nation, the Polish or Hungarian nation, uh, who share their uh, so-called conservative ideology, both share uh, Europe's uh, skepticism, and uh, launch a kind of national freedom fight uh, against so-called Brussels dictatorship. But uh, uh, in spite of these similarities, uh, uh, there are huge differences between the two things. Uh, if I want just very shortly uh, uh, characterize it, uh, I would say that uh, uh, Poland's autocratic attempt uh, uh, is a kind of uh, uh, targeting a kind of conservative bureaucratic autocracy contrary to Hungary, where a post-communist mafia state uh, was built in the last, uh, last years. Uh, and as I so, said, uh, in spite of the use of similar uh, ideological panels, uh, the Polish system is, and while the Polish one is an ideology-driven one, uh, the Hungarian one is an ideology-applying one, which means that the ideology-driven uh, <coughs> system is a uh, where the uh, it's a value coherence which bases uh, uh, the ideology, while in an ideology applying system it has a function functionality coherence of these uh, of these systems. And the uh, further difference between the two regimes that the actual decision making in Poland remains centered within the framework of formal institutions but not as in Hungary, where the political-economic decision-making is removed from the legally defined, formalized organizations and social, con social control. So the, <clears throat> the uh, major territory of decision-making in Poland, these are former bodies of leadership, mainly the peace leadership. In Hungary, it's informal body of leadership, where the, at the top of this uh, uh, hierarchy, there is the so-called chief patron's court, uh, uh, which consists of people uh, with formal and informal uh, informal positions. 
In such a way, in Poland, the ruling party is a centralized party, but in Hungary, the ruling party is a transmission belt party where within the Fidesz, uh, there is no decision making at all. And the party itself as a party in a Western sense has, uh, has no power at all. They are just a transmission belt of the uh, decisions which were taken in the, as I mentioned, the so-called chief patrons, uh, chief patrons court. Uh, the Polish system is a state dirigist bureau uh, system where bureaucratic control what they want to expand, uh, uh, <coughs> expanding the uh, competences of the state. Uh, while in Hungary, it's a single pyramid patronal network where um, a patron client network is created and the centralized chain of common built and patron client network of Pazalic uh, uh, operates uh, the whole regime. And such a way, there is a difference between the two um, between the two ruling elites as well. Uh, uh, the ruling elite in Poland is uh, built around the political institutions and characterized by party political nepotism. In Hungary, it's a kind of adopted political family, which is like a clan, where not individuals, uh, uh, those who join to such a ruling elite, but much more families. Uh, uh, and uh, while in Poland, the <coughs> followers uh, of the regime are rewarded with offices and uh, uh, offices and money, but not with wealth. In Hungary, the adopted political family accumulates wealth through the bloodless instruments of state coercion. It's a, a party rent seeking, the, uh, otherwise a central-led corporate trading which uh, uh, through which they can accumulate personal wealth. And such a way, the, if I summarize the whole thing, while Poland could be considered to be, a, in quotation mark, classical authoritarian state, what they want to create, but of course they are still not in this phase, in Hungary is a kind of criminal state, uh, which is a privatized form of a parasite state, where the whole governance is operated like a criminal organization. <clears throat> All these things, of course, uh, 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 determine their relation to the EU and determine their relation to any changes in governance. In Poland, uh, uh, Kaczynski is a person who centralizes political power uh, uh, and try to do everything to reign in power, but per in as a person, he's not a criminal. So, so the stake of the elections in Poland for Kaczynski and the peace is only that, that whether they govern or they get into opposition. In Hungary, the situation is different. <clears throat> as Orban and the adopted political family at the top is a criminal organization, the stake of the elections for them is not whether they will continue as politicians in opposition positions in the parliament, but uh, whether they can remain free uh, uh, persons or uh, can be prosecuted and maybe put in jail. And therefore, uh, uh, Orban wants to avoid this. So when they are fighting with Europe and uh, uh, Orban refers to national sovereignty and he declares his war against Brussels as a uh, national freedom fight is practically a fight for the impunity of a criminal organization. So, contrary to uh, uh, to Kaczynski, 
I think that Orban wants to remain within the EU until there are EU funds are coming in a large amount into Hungary, and he can ensure his impunity uh, for those criminal cases uh, because of the looting uh, a large share of this money for their and for families and for adopted political families' private uh, private purposes. So that's all very helpful, I think, in distinguishing Poland, con- contemporary Poland, from what's going on in Hungary. Uh, and as I read your new book, The Anatomy of Post-Communist Regimes, uh, I mean, I was struck in many ways by uh, the place you start, and that's a kind of critique of, shall we say, Western analyses of post-communist regimes, uh, and basically a critique that says, um, you know, Western analysts are using categories and language that are appropriate really to Western democracies and don't really have an analytical purchase on what's going on in post-communist Eastern Europe. And it reminded me a lot of the debate, uh, the old Sovietology debate uh, about, you know, the extent to which these communist regimes were becoming more like the West, or were they really radically, you know, other and different. Um, So I think that's, uh, you know, very useful sort of departure analytically. Um, And I guess I wonder you know, you've used this term mafia state. It doesn't seem to apply yet to Poland, um, but it does seem to apply, as you've just described it, to Hungary. You know, how widespread a phenomenon is that in the post-communist world? And is it something that, you know, a term or or a concept that one could also apply to non-post-communist states? Within the post-communist countries, uh, uh, within the EU, Hungary is the only mafia state, I think. Uh, uh, a single pyramid patronal network and uh, operating uh, as a criminal organization using uh, the bloodless means of state coercion. Uh, Beyond the EU, Russia, Central Asian countries can be considered mafia states as well. Uh, uh, But at the same time, there are so-called patronal democracies, and I make a difference between liberal democracies and patronal democracies, uh, in the post-Soviet region, uh, which means uh, uh, patronal democracies uh, can be Romania, Bulgaria, to some extent Slovakia, uh, uh, Serbia, etc., etc. Uh, 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 what means that competing patronal, patron-client networks uh, characterize the regime, and none of these patron-client networks are in the position to monopolize power. But of course, it's a fragile situation all the time. Uh, any of these patron client networks, in the form of a political party, which are not political parties in a Western sense, you know, they are just a quote a cover of a given patron client network, <clears throat> uh, gets into power. They, of course, uh, intend to have an autocratic attempt and to monopolize their power, but at the same time, there are institutional guarantees or constraints which hamper them in these efforts. The two most important institutional guarantees <coughs> in this field is, on one hand, the proportionate election system, because it's very unlikely that one in a proportionate election system, any political forces can gain a supermajority in the parliament. And the second is uh, the divided executive power, where uh, uh, 
normally directly elected uh, uh, president and the government at the same time both has uh, uh, some important uh, executive power. This creates such a balance uh, uh, which hampers uh, to, uh, to have such a situation where any of the patron client networks can get into a monopolistic position. <clears throat> but on the other hand, when they try to do it, let's take the example of Ukraine, uh, first with Kuchma and then with Yanukovych, who intended this, then still was a possibility when a, a color revolution, orange revolution, turned back this process. But it created a cycle because this democratization process was not accompanied by anti-patronal transformation. And normally, in these orange revolutions, where the uh, so-called revolutionary masses uh, uh, just uh, did not let uh, the the rise or the consolidation of an autocratic attempt, they were backed by such oligarchs who had some conflicts with the power as well. And then it did not uh, result in an anti-patronal transformation and it gives to the region in, in a lot of countries such a, uh, such a kind of cyclical development when, where, where, <clears throat> where some democratization efforts are uh, followed by uh, anti-democratization processes and uh, uh, and so on. Uh, the basic problem with the with the mainstream politology, uh, uh, which tries to describe uh, uh, the post-communist countries, that <clears throat> they had the assumption during after the regime changes of uh, 89-90 for at least ten years uh, that uh, if the communist dictatorship is Collapsing, then, then, uh, uh, then definitely a liberal democratic regime will arise, uh, and it's just a question of time, or just uh, uh, just some uh, uh, some deviances uh, which uh, hamper this process. And when they try to describe these uh, societies, they use the categories. What, which are used for the description of liberal democracies, where the main spheres of social action, uh, uh, politics, economy, and, uh, and the communal uh, uh, sphere of social actions, are separated. While in these countries, even historically, more or less, they are colluded, uh, uh, and there are collusion uh, uh, among, these, uh, among these spheres. And it creates another situation on the surface you, you see uh, democratic procedures. On the other hand, they are not accompanied with anti-patronal transformation, which would result the separation of social spheres in a Western European or in an uh, American uh, uh, sense, of the, sense of the world. And therefore, these categories, what they use for the description, they are not, they are not uh, valid for these societies. And when they realize that, okay, it's, it's, it's not just the question of transformation, a short transformation time, uh, but uh, there are more or less stable regimes which are not democratic after the collapse of communist systems uh, and communist regimes, then this transitology was replaced by the hybridology. And hybridology practically does not say anything about the real nature of these regimes, especially so these terms like illiberal democracy, etc., etc., 
uh, I think that these are useless for the description. This is this is like when I uh, I have I had the feeling that if I go enter into a zoo and I uh, look at an elephant and 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 then the mainstream politology said that it's an illiberal fish uh, uh, because if they would behave better then they should transform to be fishes at the end. But it does not happen. These are elephants and the categories with which I can describe that type of animal. Uh, 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 these are different from those with which I can describe other types of, uh, other types of animals, I would say. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I guess I want to go back then to this uh, uh, model you have advanced uh, that talks about what I think of now as the three, the ABCs of autocracy, autocratic attempt, autocratic breakthrough, and autocratic consolidation. Uh, and of course, this was recently employed, as you know, by the journalist Masha Gessen in an article in The New Yorker that was really about uh, Donald Trump and, and what Donald Trump is doing in the post-electoral period here in the United States. And so I guess, I mean, as you can imagine, for most of us, it's shocking and striking that we are even, you know, having these kinds of discussions uh, that apply to, that we th usually think of as applying to uh, places like Russia um, and now we are talking about whether or not, uh, you know, Donald Trump has, is on the verge of or has made uh, an autocratic breakthrough in the United States. Uh, and I guess I wonder to what extent, you know, is that kind of analysis actually useful? I mean, uh, Trump, what Trump is doing is indeed the sort of thing that we associate with banana republics and other uh, undemocratic kinds of contexts in which leaders, you know, reverse the outcomes of popular elections uh, when they lose and this sort of thing. But uh, I'm also inclined to think, I mean, I listened to the comments, for example, of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military officer in the United States, who says, we don't take an oath to a king or a queen or a tyrant. We take an oath to the Constitution. Um, and so one is reassured that, you know, the forces of force uh, are going to, you know, defend the constitutional order of the United States. Uh, but the, again, the fact that we're even talking about whether that's a question is uh, sort of extraordinary. So I guess I wonder to some extent, you know, is the kind of analysis that you've developed with regard to post-communist Eastern Europe and, and the post-Soviet space more generally, uh, is that, you know, so you've just described ways in which the United States and the West, you know, have differentiated their various social spheres and uh, that that makes it a different kind of institutional order. I mean, are we, you know, in danger of losing that uh, institutional order? How do you see that? Yes, unfortunately, it's a real surprise for me as well. You know, especially the, the latest news shows that uh, now Donald Trump is turning to uh, to the houses of uh, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania and ask them uh, to delegate uh, such electors which should support uh, uh, him and, uh, and and not uh, uh, 
the declared will of the people through the votes uh, uh, in those uh, states of uh, the United States. So it's really dangerous, and I, uh, until now I believe that the American uh, democracy is much more stable, and now uh, there is a real, a really dangerous situation, because the real dangerous situation, what populism is doing, is practically that try to undermine the legitimacy of liberal democracies. And uh, in, in our book, which uh, was written with a young friend of my, Barry Modrovic, uh, we use a definition with, for populism, which is, uh, which is not very uh, uh, general, I think. And, and it sounds uh, as the necessary, as, as the as next, populism is an ideological instrument for a political program of morally unconstrained collective egoism. And all the parts of this sentence are important. When we say that it's an ideological instrument, uh, we refer to the fact that it's not an ideology with a coherence of certain values, but it's just an instrument, which means it has, as I mentioned, it has a functionality coherence. So it can uh, use uh, uh, totally contradicting panels of different ideologies if uh, the user feels that it's useful in this uh, given situation. And what is the political program of this ideological instrument what, uh, it is used for? The political program is nothing else, I think, than replacing the legal rational legitimacy with a substantive rational legitimacy. And this is what Trump is doing now. He says he, he, he wants to sweep away uh, 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 the legitimate bodies and saying that I am the representative of the people, uh, 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 there were, uh, uh, the election and the vic- his victory was stolen, uh, 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 there were cheatings and the elections, etc., etc. It's undermining the legitimacy base of, uh, of this one. When we say that morally unconstrained collective egoism, which means that this uh, uh, attack against the against uh, politically correct speeches, against certain uh, human rights organizations, uh, then he builds up, builds up and um, uh, supporting uh, uh, group of followers uh, of him around an imaginary community, people, nation, what he speaks, the different which is openly, openly represents selfish interests and give up the, the norms and requirements of uh, of social solidarity uh, in, in a certain society in this society, and this is why it's very dangerous. Of course, it it populism has a, a demand and the supply side. The demand side, when there are such certain uh, parts or groups of the society which feel that they are or they can be losers in certain situations. And uh, the supply side, when I produce for them an ideology where they can get rid of any requirements of solidarity, but uh, very openly uh, representing their own interests. Sometimes they, sociologists, politologists, call this tribalism, but I think it's not the right word for, right word for that, uh, because the tribes, I would say, they are structured organizations, while here uh, 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 the essence of this development 
that there is a leader who knows what the people want and he denies uh, <coughs> any institutional structures which should be serve as a terrain of uh, deliberation or, or public discussion uh, uh, of different interests uh, and creating compromises, necessary compromises and consensus within a society. And this kind of populism, of course, uh, is, can, is characterizes uh, Orbán's regime, uh, uh, Putin's regime, and now, now Trump is following this model. Of course, the potential resistance of the American society is much bigger uh, and much more serious than, than the uh, resisting potential of, was of Hungary or Russia. Well, needless to say, I hope that you're right about that. And I do expect that that's the case, but we've got two months of uncertainty to face uh, before Joe Biden is theoretically uh, inaugurated as the next president. And then we have to figure out what to do with Mr. Trump, uh, which is going to raise its own set of questions, which you've also had to deal with in Eastern Europe extensively in the past. But on that note, let me uh, thank you, uh, Balint Magyar, for speaking to us today and sharing your insights uh, about the anatomy of post-communist regimes. Uh, I want to thank Risto uh, Voinov for his uh, technical assistance, Meryl Sovner for helping to produce this episode, and the Otto and Fran Walter Foundation for their support of our work at the European Union Studies Center and the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to having you with us the next time on International Horizons. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.